Today is the first of what will, Lord willing, be five sermons from the book of Jonah. There's an outline in your bulletin that actually has the five sermons um, pointed out and lists the dates for each one and the, the title of each, and you can get a flavor there for where we're going here. Very excited to be here in Jonah. Um, even the youngest folks among us know this story. I, I can't think about the book of Jonah anymore without calling to mind the Veggie Tales and the, their rendition of Jonah. It's one of their best productions. Uh, look, this is a familiar story. This is an exciting story. When I use the word story, I mean account. Familiar, exciting, much loved. Um, above all, this is a very, very convicting story. Jonah is a book of uncomfortable places and uncomfortable questions. Think about the uncomfortable places that Jonah ends up in. Just tick through them in your mind. Think about the places he ends up in and how uncomfortable they are. A a ship at sea in the midst of a terrible storm that threatens to, that's so violent that it threatens to break up the ship. Could there be anything more uncomfortable than being there? Well, if it's not that, what about being inside of a fish for three days? How uncomfortable is that? And if it's not that, and honestly, I think this would probably be my least favorite of all the places Jonah ended up. Uh, No shade in the scorching sun, in a scorching east wind. God appointed that sun to beat down on his head in this really hot wind. He's so uncomfortable. Jonah's a book of uncomfortable places, and it's a book of uncomfortable questions. Okay, three times in the book of Jonah, he's told to arise. Twice by God, and one time by the the mariners who are his shipmates. Three times he's told to arise. He's commanded to get up. Every other time, someone speaks to Jonah in this book. It's for the purpose of asking him a question. Really is interesting and and even amazing to just look through the book and see all of the questions that get asked of him. He's peppered with questions through the whole account. Jonah is a book of uncomfortable places and uncomfortable questions. And so this this book is just going to make us uncomfortable. Like, we're going to be right there with him. We should expect to experience all of the same emotions that Jonah experiences. We should expect to be frustrated. We should expect to be so, so thankful. And probably we should expect to be angry at some point. 
it's just going to be really uncomfortable. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a really good thing. For the most part, we're just going to set the table today. We're going to notice how the account begins. We're only going to cover three verses. And the account begins with um, what we could just call defiance. That's the name of this sermon today. Defiance. This is part one. Just setting the table. Three verses, okay? Let's stand in honor of God and his word, shall we? The book of Jonah begins this way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare And he went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I pray that you give us fresh eyes because this account is so familiar that we're in danger of not taking in anything because we think we know. I pray you'd give us attentive spirits and soft hearts and be pleased to do something new in your people during this time which we have devoted to giving attention to what you have spoken. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would attend all of these things because without the Holy Spirit, um, we have no power of change at all. We have no insight. We have no hope. So we pray for great Holy Spirit guidance today and throughout this series as we give attention to your work in the life of Jonah. And we pray in Jesus' holy name and for his sake. Amen. All right, please be seated. The outline is really simple. We've got three verses. We've got three points, okay? In verse one, we meet the messenger. In verse two, we learn about the mission. And then in verse three, we have what I'm calling the mirror. And I'll say more about that when we get to that point. So we have verse one, the messenger, verse two, the mission. And then in verse three, we have what I'm calling the mirror. So we meet in verse one, the messenger. We meet the main character He's the son of a certain man who lived at a certain time, and the word of the Lord came to him. In a sense, God, God's concerns are global and even universal. God is ruling over everything. He is working in history to bring all of history to a consummation in his appointed way. So in a sense, God is working at the macro level. He's working everywhere and in everything. And in the book of Jonah, we are reminded and we learn that God is also working on individuals. He's also working at the micro level level on one person. He's not just working on unconverted individuals, people who don't know him. God is at work on his own people, people that already know him. 
Nineveh at that time was a city of about 600,000 people, including the surrounding areas. And they've got a problem. And God is going to work on their problem. But that's not the main story of the book of Jonah. The main storyline is not about the 600,000 idol worshipers. It's about the one person in the story who knows and worships the one true God. And his name is Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah spoke for God. He was God's spokesperson in the the northern kingdom. Okay, so the kingdom of Israel. Israel is the northern kingdom. Judah is the southern kingdom after the division. Okay, Jonah is God's prophet, his spokesperson in the northern kingdom after Elijah and Elisha, but before Amos. So we're talking about the mid-700s B.C. And what's important for us to know is we try to get a handle on what was going on in the context in which he was speaking for God. In Israel, it was a time of physical prosperity. But it was also a time of spiritual poverty. The king's name was Jeroboam II. You can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 14. The great thing that was happening is that he was restoring the borders of Israel. So their border was pushing outward. They were recovering land that they had previously lost. So everyone's happy about that, right? It's a really good thing for Israel. That's what I mean by physical prosperity. Things are going well for our country. We're gaining territory back. But... He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He, he didn't remove the idols. The people that are still worshiping idols. So you see what a dangerous combination that is? That there's physical prosperity, so people are really happy about that, but there's spiritual poverty at the same time. And that spiritual poverty is really kind of masked because things are going so well. So they're tempted to think God is really pleased with us because our territory is expanding and he's giving us, giving us this back. I think we can all understand that feeling. Things are going well practically and physically, but spiritually not so, not so good. And as will be borne out in the story, Jonah is not immune from this spiritual poverty. He's a child of his generation He's not a finished product spiritually. He has some, some heart issues. And so we find out right away in verse 1 that God is going to work on Jonah. We know that God's work in Jonah's life is the main storyline because chapter 4 is there. If God's work in Nineveh was the main point of the story, 
the end of chapter 3 would do really nicely for a conclusion because you know what happens. There's repentance and God spares them. And, and so, great, that's the end of the story. Things are accomplished. But that's not the end of the story. We know that God's work in Jonah's life is the main storyline because we have chapter 4. The main story is God's work in the life of an individual, the one God worshiper, not the 600,000 idol worshipers. And it's so important for us to dwell on this point today because none none of us here in this room are watching online. None of us consider ourselves to be God's main work project in the world right now. We think it's those people that don't know God, the false, the adherents of false religions that don't know him. Surely that's his main work project and his main concern right now in the world is all those people that don't know him. It can't be me because I already know him. Or we might think that the great problem right now is the evil done by others in our society that's constantly rising up before God? When is God going to correct all these evil people doing all these evil things in our society? That must be God's main concern. Or if those things aren't his main concern, then surely his main concern is this other Christian that I know that's not walking like they should be right now that really needs the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's God's main concern. This other person that really needs to be sensitive and corrected by the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's God's main work project right now in this church. See, the great problem is never me. How could it be me? It's always someone else. Jonah would never have guessed that he would be God's main work project. He, he wore the halo in, in their community. He was the one. He's, he was God's spokesperson. How could, how could he be God's main work project? And yet it was him that God took up as a special project and said, I'm not leaving you like you are. And we may think that we have got it all together because we're a teacher or we're a servant or we lead this ministry or I'm in full-time ministry or we're an important person. No, that's not our identity. We are a work project. And that's really the main point today. The main point today is really right here up front. The main point of this message to drive this home to us all, to get this one point into our hearts, to get us to the point where we make this This confession, I am the work project in this room. No one here needs the Holy Spirit more than I do. No one needs correction by God more than me. No one's heart is more in need of help than mine. God's work project in the book of Jonah is the last person that we'd expect it to be. It's his messenger. That's who we meet in verse 1, or as we now could call him, the work project. 
In verse two, we learn about the mission. We learn what the mission is. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Okay, look at, look at the words, the substance of the mission, what he's actually supposed to do, the substance of it is preaching, call out. I want you to go there and call out. That's the substance of the mission. That's the activity. He's to call out against the city. The reason for the mission, we find out, is the evil practices of a certain group of people, the Ninevites. Their evil has come up before God. That's the reason for the mission. So the substance is preaching. The reason is their evil. There are evil people sinning. And there is a holy God whom their evil is rising up to. Men and women are sinning here. They're evil. God is here, holy, and their evil is rising up to him. And in between evil men and a holy God stands this activity called preaching. Preaching at its heart is proclamation. That's what the word means. Truth is proclaimed. And obedience to that truth is urged. And that's Jonah's mission. Go preach. Notice that nothing is said about what the results will be. That's up to God. It's Jonah's job just to obey. We're going to notice as we go through that the theme of the book of Jonah is the mercy of God. And right here at the beginning, in the very first few verses, I just want to call your attention to this one thing about the mercy of God. And that's simply this, that preaching, preaching itself reveals God's heart of mercy. Why is that? Because God does not owe us any warning. It's a merciful thing that God warns. He doesn't have to, and yet he does. He mercifully, in his mercy, he sends a messenger to the people of Nineveh to give them warning and time to repent. Jonah is to be the carrier or the vessel of that mercy. It's a mercy mission. And that becomes the sticking point, doesn't it? Because the final thing we learn in verse 2 is that the location of the mission is Nineveh. Three quick points on Nineveh. The Ninevites are Gentile idolaters. So they're very different from the people of Israel. They're they're not Jewish. They're Gentiles. They do not worship Yahweh, the one true God. They, They are idolaters. They worship idols and all kinds of gods. The people of Israel abhorred them. They regarded them as dirty and evil. 
So one, they're Gentile idolaters. Number two, they are the enemies of Israel. The people there are the enemies of Israel. Nineveh was one of the great cities of the Assyrian Empire that had given Israel so much trouble over the years. They represented a constant threat to their to the border of Israel. And they would eventually be the ones who destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel about 30 years after Jonah. They were Gentile idolaters. They were enemies of Israel. Finally, this is really important. They were enemies of Israel at a low point. Nineveh was at a low point historically. They were at a vulnerable point. Their influence and power had waned while Israel's had increased. So there was, without a doubt, a desire on Jonah's part, understandably, to see them completely overthrown and eliminated as a threat. But we we know this is true from living our own lives, that so often the time when God can reach us best is when we're at a low point, when we're vulnerable. And it's just at this point that God is going to work among the Ninevites. Nineveh was low, but Jonah was hoping not for mercy, but extinction. And that's the conflict that God wants to show mercy, and Jonah wants extinction. God's priorities are mercy and compassion, and Jonah's priorities are national security and comfort. Now, by the way, Jonah, Jonah could have made a very strong and God-centered argument for his priorities, couldn't he have? He could have made a really strong argument for his priorities of national security and comfort, and he could have brought God into it and given us all kinds of reasons why his priorities were the right ones. Because, look, if our enemy is eliminated, think about how good that is for God. That's wonderful for God. If our enemies are thrown down and Our border expands. And we don't have any worries anymore. That's a really strong argument. God is brought into that argument. Wouldn't that be a huge win for God if Nineveh were gone? See, he could have made a very strong and logical and God-centered argument for his priorities of national security and comfort. for his desire to see Nineveh extinct. And he could have said, this will be really great, not only for us, but this will be really great for God. Do you know who decides what's good for God? God decides what's good for God. We might very logically think Boy, it sure would be terrible for God if our church closes. Or it sure would be terrible for God if our society collapses. 
Or wouldn't it be a horrible thing for God if our country ceased to exist? And we would have all kinds of wonderful, logical, God-centered arguments for that position. And this account runs directly contrary to those thoughts. And we have to come to grips with this one thing, that God decides what is good for God. He decides what is in his best interest. He's not governed by human ideas about what will be good for him. We would never suggest that God allow missionaries to die young, and that happens all the time. We would never have suggested that it was a good idea for God to allow his apostles to be imprisoned. And he did. We should not look for God to do the logical thing. We should look for God to do the good thing. According to his own purposes. And his intention in the days of Jonah was to save Israel's enemy. And it runs directly counter to what Jonah desired and what would have seemed logical for the advancement of God's people. So what's the takeaway? Let's not be surprised when God decides to do or allow something that seems to run contrary to to the advancement of his kingdom. It happened in the days of Jonah. It happened in the days of Jesus. It happened in the days prior to Jonah. It happened in the days of the apostles. And it still happens today. Jonah's desire is extinction. God's mission is mercy and compassion displayed through preaching. In verse 1, we see the messenger. In verse 2, we see the mission. And finally, in verse 3, we have what I'm calling the mirror. have in verse 3 what I'm calling a mirror. You know what a mirror does. A mirror reflects back to us our true condition. For better or for worse. It shows us what's true about ourselves. We look to a mirror to see what do I really look like. What's true about me right now. What we're saying is that Jonah's actions following God's command reveal what his heart is really like. His actions are the mirror. They are the thing that reveals what's in his heart. Jonah's actions reveal the true condition of his heart. They are a mirror that doesn't lie and doesn't show preference to him because he's God's spokesperson. The word of God comes clearly to him. God speaks clearly and simply. And Jonah does rise, but he flees in the opposite direction. The text reads that he arose to flee from the presence of the Lord. Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he begins to take steps in defiance. It's not just that he stays 
home and is lazy. He goes to a lot of trouble to get as far away from Nineveh and the Lord as he can. And we read about all these things that he does outwardly. All of these actions that are displaying the true condition of his heart. Rises up, went down, found a ship, paid the fare, went on board. And what do these things say about his internal condition? They're really, they're revealing, aren't they? They are revealing what he's really like on the inside. Because understand, Jonah knows, he knows a lot about God. He has a lot of head knowledge about God. Just look at verse 2 of chapter 4. Jonah 4.2, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. So here's what he knows. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. He knows so much about what God is like. He knows it. He knows those words. He knows what they mean. He knows God's character. He teaches others about God's character. He speaks for God. He knows, he knows, he knows. But here is the burning question in the book of Jonah. What if God's own people are not like him? What if the ones who represent him on earth are not like him. What if they know a lot about him, but they aren't like him? What if they are even opposed to him? How backwards is that? But that's exactly what happens here. And so... We, bringing ourselves in the story, into the story, have to likewise look in the mirror and ask ourselves the question, do I look like him, him on the inside? I claim to know him, but am I actually like him? What do your actions reveal about you? What do your attitudes and your priorities actually reveal about the true condition of your heart? Knowledge about God that does not make it from the brain to the heart hardens us. Knowledge about God that doesn't make it from the brain to the heart hardens us because we think we know it all. We lose the ability to be repentant and want to change and feel the need for change because we think we know him. Be much better off if we didn't know anything about God at all. But if we're storing up all this knowledge about God in our head, but it doesn't make it to our heart, 
It has a hardening effect on us. Makes us more and more impervious to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Notice that Jonah is not just disobedient to the word, that he flees from God's very presence. That's noted two times. Away from the presence of God. He would rather be separated from God completely than humble himself and submit and obey. He'd rather be completely separated from God, away from his presence. And that's a really scary level of hardening. And we have to be so, so careful because this is all through the Bible. This very scenario of God's own people not reflecting his values. God's own people not looking like him is the occasion for the telling of probably the most famous story in the Bible. It's not the most famous story, it's the second. The parable of the prodigal son. The occasion for Jesus telling that parable is that the Pharisees were angry that Jesus was drawing near to sinners. That that made them angry. They didn't rejoice that sinners were being shown mercy in God's name. They were angry about that. And so Jesus told the story of the prodigal son in which the main character is not the younger wasteful son. The main character is not the prodigal. And the main character is not the father. As wonderful as those characters are, the main character is the older son who's angry when the father throws the party for the lost son who comes home. He does not rejoice that his sinning brother has come home. And so Jesus is holding up a mirror to the Pharisees saying, this is you. You're like this. My own people do not look like me. You are the older brother claiming to know me, claiming to represent me. You have all the outward signs of righteousness, but you are not like the father that you claim to worship. And we're learning the same thing about Jonah here. Something is not right on the inside, even though he knows God so well. Because his internal reflex is not toward mercy. His internal reflex is not toward mercy. It's toward other things like judgment on his enemies and national security. Those are the things that are important to him. And the Pharisees, 700 years later, had the same priorities. The problem had not gone away. And we have to ask ourselves, in all fairness, we have to ask ourselves, has the problem gone away yet? Have God's people changed on the inside and have an instinct toward mercy and compassion? Like the Heavenly Father. Is our internal reflex toward mercy or is it toward things like national security and comfort? Uncomfortable places and uncomfortable questions.
What if God's work project in the world right now is you? What if his main concern in this world is not all those other people doing all those terrible things, but it's actually you? Or it's actually me? If that's true, that God's main work project in this world right now is actually you and me, that would be exactly in line with the whole testimony of Scripture. That's what we see over and over again, that he's always working on his people who aren't right. It would be exactly in line with Scripture if the main problem is you and the main problem is me. What if I am the real work project in this world and in this church? I think that's a great question for every pastor to ask of himself because we think we're here to help other people. We think we're here to work on everyone else. And I think every pastor needs to take a, a serious pause and ask the question right out of the book of Jonah, what if it's me? Amidst all this ministry that I think I'm doing as God's spokesperson and I'm the one who knows him well, what if it's me? What if the reason I'm here is because I am the main work project? And something's not right with my heart. That would be exactly in line with the scriptures. And in the environment we're living in, brothers and sisters, as you know, where we're loving right now to point out all of the shortcomings of other people and where other people don't get it right in terms of their views and what they think and poking holes in arguments of other people, it's a great time for everyone to stop and say, what if the problem is me? What if it's my heart? Jonah is the last person that would have expected to be God's work project. And yet he is. I think we've gotten the main point. And let's leave it there. It's an uncomfortable point, an uncomfortable place, an uncomfortable question. But I just invite you to join me in that prayer over the next few weeks. God, show me what you want to do in my heart over the next five weeks as we give attention to the life of Jonah. Amen. Uh, Father, we're, we're completely at your mercy here. And I uh, just want to say with my brothers and sisters that sitting in an uncomfortable place and experiencing emotions of frustration and anger and questioning is not a bad place to be if in the end it brings us closer to your heart where our lives are a truer picture of Jesus. So we ask again for a softness of heart and a, a searching internal work by the Holy Spirit where you allow us to get really low and just ask and listen, Father, could it be me? What needs to change in me? We ask in Jesus' name, amen.